First Peter chapter 2, and we're reading from the verse number 1. Wherefore, laying aside all malice and all guile and hypocrisies and envies and all evil speakings, as newborn babes desire the sincere milk of the word that ye may grow thereby, if so be ye have tasted that the Lord is gracious, to whom coming is unto a living stone, disallowed indeed of men, but chosen of God and precious. Ye also as lively stones are built up a spiritual house and holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God by Jesus Christ. Wherefore also it is contained in the scripture, and behold, I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone, elect, precious, and he that believeth on him shall not be confounded. Unto you therefore which believe, he is precious, but unto them which be disobedient, the stone which the builders disallowed, the same is made the head of the corner, and the stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, even to them which stumble at the word, being disobedient, whereunto also they were appointed. But ye are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, and holy nation, a peculiar people, that ye should show forth the praises of him who hath called you out of darkness into his marvelous light which in time past were not a people, but are now the people of God, which had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. Amen. We know that God will add his own blessing to the reading of his word. Tonight we're going to think about Christian royalty. There has, there has been a, a huge interest in royalty of recent times, the trappings of royalty, the, the riches of royalty, the, the sparkle and glitter of, of, of royalty. But let us remember that we are all royalty, and we belong to the greatest royal family of all. And Peter talks about that in First Peter chapter 2 and the verse 9. But ye are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, and holy nation, a peculiar people, that ye should show forth the praises of him who hath called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. And we should be reminded, first of all, that Peter is talking to all of God's people. He's talking to every Christian here. He says, but ye, and that's the plural. And there's nobody that is not included within the scope of this. Whenever we are part of the family of God, all of these descriptions define us all individually. And we are all complete in Christ. And from, from that perspective, there's no hierarchy in the family of God. Uh, we are all this chosen generation, this royal priesthood, this holy nation, this peculiar people, and we all have this one sacred calling to show forth the praises of him who hath called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. This really is a definition of what it means to be a Christian. What is it to be a Christian? What, uh, how, how do we describe what a Christian is? How do we describe what we are as the, the people of God? How do we understand it? Well, Peter is teaching us here how we understand our place in the family of God. First Peter 2, verse 9, But ye are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, and holy nation, a peculiar people, that ye should show forth the praises of him who hath called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. So let, let's look at each part of this verse, and let's be encouraged in our hearts as we think about who we are tonight. First of all, we are chosen children. We are a chosen generation. Whenever we think of a new generation, we're thinking of children being born. There's always a blessing to see another generation. A new generation is a gift. But we are all children. But we are children because we have been chosen by God. 
We're a chosen generation. And we have been chosen to be part of God's family. So the generation that we belong to is a generation of God's children. Now, who are the people that Peter is writing to? Because I think this is relevant. And if you come back to 1 Peter chapter 1 and the verse 1, you discover who the people are that he is writing to. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to the strangers scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. So they were scattered. They were a scattered people. The, the word there is diaspiro. That's the Greek word, they, they were scattered. And it's, it's a word that actually is used of people from a particular nation, and they have been forced to leave that nation, and they have been scattered into different parts of the world. And you sometimes hear that, that, that phrase about the, the, the diaspiro. And, and these people were Jews. They were strangers in the countries where they were scattered to. And so they were scattered throughout the Roman Empire. And they were scattered to these various locations, which were in Asia, Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia. And Peter is writing to these people. Now he's writing to a people who had lost their homeland. He is writing to a people who had lost their place in the world. He is writing to a people who were forced to leave. Now, they were a Christian people, so they were Jewish, but they were also Christians. And because they were being persecuted where they were from, in Jerusalem and in Judea, they were forced to leave. And therefore, their life had been difficult. It had been hard for them. We cannot begin to understand how hard it must be for anyone to be forced to leave their home. And so they were scattered abroad. And so Peter was encouraging them. He says, well, you've lost your earthly kingdom. You've lost your place in the earthly family because your, your families no longer want you because you've embraced Jesus Christ. But you're part of a new family, a better family. You're part of a new kingdom, a better kingdom. You are a chosen generation. And you will see there in verse 2 of 1 Peter chapter 1, Peter says to these people, you're scattered abroad, but you're elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. You have a greater honor, lifts you far above any earthly family or any earthly nation. You're elect according to the foreknowledge of God. And that's exactly what Peter is saying here in 1 Peter 2 verse 9. But he said, you are a chosen generation. Israel was ever identified as the chosen nation. Israel existed because they were chosen. And Peter perhaps is referring here to Isaiah 43, 21. This people have I formed for myself. They shall show forth my praise. These are my people. I have formed them in order that they might show forth my praises. Abraham was chosen, chosen to come out of Ur of the Chaldees. It was a surprising choice. He wasn't expecting it. And then you think of how Jacob was chosen. He was the surprising choice. And then you think of how Judah was chosen, not Reuben. And within the family of Judah, David, the youngest son of Jesse, was chosen. God was constantly choosing the foolish things of the world to confound the things that were mighty. This was the way in which he was working. And 
these people had their problems, they had their difficulties, they had their anxieties, they had their cares. But Peter was saying, be encouraged. You're chosen by God. You're a chosen generation. You're in the family of God. Royalty is dependent upon ancestry and lineage. Someone becomes a member of royalty because they've been born into it. The bloodline becomes all important. The bloodline is treasured. But we have come into the family of God. And we have all the rights of the family of God. All the rights of God's family are ours tonight because of God's grace. And we can trace our ancestry back to the council chambers of eternity when God chose a people to be his. We are chosen children, but we're also royal priests. We are a royal priesthood. Now, there are two Old Testament promises which teach us what this means to be a royal priest, because every one of us tonight, we're royal priests. That's what we are. It's, it's no presumptuous thing, and it's no uh, foolish thing to say, I, I'm a royal priest, because the Bible says we're royal priests. But what does it mean to be a royal priest? Well, two important verses. The first one is Exodus chapter 19 and the verse 6. And ye shall be unto me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. And God there is speaking of all Israel. All Israel is a kingdom of priests. Now, why were all Israel a kingdom of priests? Because, you say, wasn't Levi the, the, the priestly tribe? Uh, Reuben and Judah and Simeon and Gad and Asher and all those other tribes, they weren't priestly tribes. Well, how come the whole nation is described as a nation of priests? Because all of Israel were priests through Levi. When Levi interceded for the people, or, or when the members of the tribe of Levi, the, the priests, whenever they interceded for the people, the people were praying and offering sacrifices through the priest. The priest was acting on behalf of the people. So because the priest was acting on their behalf, mediating for them, they were all priests. They all had an interest in that priesthood. And of course, that priesthood was so important because it gave them access to God. So Israel was defined by the priesthood. The priesthood defined their relationship with a holy God, and therefore they were all priests. But the second text which teaches us what it means to be a royal priesthood is found in the book of Zechariah, chapter 6 and the verse 13. And this is a prophecy concerning our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Even he shall build the temple of the Lord, and he shall bear the glory and shall sit and rule upon his throne. And he shall be a priest upon his throne. And the council of peace shall be between them both. So here we have a priest. A priest who sits upon a throne. Do you see that? He sits, he bears rule. He's on a throne. And he's a priest on the throne. There only was one person who fulfills this criteria, the priest upon the throne. Well, you have Melchizedek in the Old Testament. He was a priest upon the throne. And Abraham gave him tithes. And I certainly believe Melchizedek was Christ 
I'll not get into all that now. But certainly Christ is the priest upon the throne. And in Israel, no priest could sit on the throne and no, no king could do the work of the priest. There was a separation of rules and responsibilities. And then we have Christ. And he's king of kings and lord of lords. And he's also our great high priest. So he's the, the greatest king, the sovereign one. He's on his throne. But he's the priest. He's offered up that one sacrifice. And he prays for us. And he makes intercession. Christ is the royal priest. And that phrase too, in building the temple of the Lord, that refers to the work of building the church. The church is a holy temple. Christ is building his church, but he sits in the midst of the church. Revelation, we see him as the priest wearing the, the great garment. This is the garment of the priest, and, and he's clothed with it, and, and he's in the midst of the golden candlesticks. He's there right in the very midst of his people. Christ sits in the very midst of his church as the royal priest. But how does that relate to us? We are kings and priests in him. We have an interest in Christ's priesthood because everything he does, he does for us. He's our representative. So he prays to God, we are praying to God in him. He offers thanksgiving, we offer thanksgiving in him. He died for us, we died with him. He rose again for us, we rose again with him. He rules as the King of kings, Lord of lords. We rule with him. We are in Christ and everything that we are is bound up in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Therefore, if he is a royal priest, we are royal priests. Martin Luther, you know, got a sense of this, perhaps as no other person in the history of the world before saw it. And Martin Luther, he wrote, I have the full quote on the website. I'm not going to read it all. You can read it yourself. But he says, the nature of this priesthood and kingship is something like this. First, with respect to the kingship, every Christian is by faith so exalted above all things by virtue of a spiritual power. He is Lord of all things without exception so that nothing can do him any harm. And then he goes on to say this. The power of which we speak is spiritual. It rules in the midst of enemies and is powerful in the midst of oppression. This means nothing else than that power is made perfect in weakness and that in all things I can find profit towards salvation so that the cross and death itself are compelled to serve me and work together with me for my salvation. This is a splendid privilege and hard to attain, a truly omnipotent power, a spiritual dominion in which there is nothing so good and nothing so evil but that it shall work together for good to me. If only I believe, Yes, since faith alone suffices for salvation, I need nothing except faith exercising the power and dominion of its own liberty. Lo, this is the inestimable power and liberty of all Christians. And, and what Luther was saying there is, if Christ reigns, we reign with him. And if Christ is the king of all the earth, then we are the most powerful people on earth because we are royal priests. And therefore, whatever seems to cause alarm or consternation to the people of this world. It should never alarm us because the Lord's in control. And as he is in control, we are in control because he is our royal priest. And therefore, we can face anything in life if only we could see that through faith. 
And that is exactly what Martin Luther was saying. The royal priesthood. And then we have a righteous identity because we are described as a holy nation. A holy nation. We cherish our national identity. It's something that is precious. But yet no nation on earth is holy. Every nation on earth is an unrighteous nation because we're twisted and we're usually ruled by ungodly people and there's so much injustice and there's so much things that are so many things that are wrong. So there's no righteousness in any nation on earth. But we belong to a nation that's greater and more wonderful than the British state. We belong to the kingdom of the church. And this is a holy nation. If we consider our national identity to be something that we take pride in, then we should consider our place in the nation over which Christ presides as king to be something more precious, something more precious. Remember, he was writing to a people who had lost their kingdom. They had lost their nation. They'd been scattered throughout the Roman Empire. But he's saying you have something better. You're part of a holy nation. And you're under a king who never makes any mistakes. And what a blessing thing that is. And then the people of God are also a special people. Special people. We're a special people. That's quite a, a thing to say, but that's what we are. We're a special people. The word he uses here is peculiar. We are a peculiar people. Now, the word peculiar, it's most inadequate in conveying the truth here presented. And it's even more inadequate today than it was whenever the translators of the authorized version wrote this down. Because the word peculiar then meant someone special. But the word peculiar now generally is used of someone who's a little bit eccentric, a little bit strange, they're a peculiar person. And that is nowhere near what Peter is saying. And John Brown, great Bible expositor, wrote two big volumes on the first epistle of Peter. Uh, he, he said this, this word peculiar, it means literally a people for a purchased possession or for a treasure. And hold on to that word special. Because the old way of understanding the word peculiar was it was something special. And John Brown says, the word in the Greek language actually means something that is so special, it is purchased with a great price. It is a treasure that you would pay a lot of money for. That's what the word peculiar means. It is used in Ephesians 1 and 14, which is the earnest of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession and to the praise of his glory. And there Paul is talking about redemption, the purchased possession, something peculiar, something that's worth ever so much. In Exodus chapter 19 and the verse 5 we read, Now therefore, if ye will obey my voice indeed and keep my covenant, then ye shall be a peculiar treasure. And there the word treasure is put in with the word peculiar. It's a peculiar treasure. You're a peculiar treasure unto me above all people for all the earth is mine. We are God's treasure. And that's what he's saying. That's how wonderful we are. We're the treasure of the Lord. And of course, Malachi talked about this. And they shall be mine, saith the Lord, Malachi 3.17. 
in that day when I make up my deal. Now we have the Lord coming back again. And he's gathering up all of his jewels, all his precious people. He's making them up. Gathering his jewels together, his sparkling jewels. That the Lord Jesus shed his precious blood for. Therefore, we understand this term, peculiar people, redemptively. Purchased the precious blood, the Lord Jesus Christ. That's who we are. Finally, we have a glorious purpose. Of course, if we are indeed a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a peculiar people, if we are so remarkable, if we are so wonderful, not because there's anything good in us, but because of God's grace, then we must have a great purpose. God has saved us for a purpose. And he talks about this purpose here in the, the closing part of this text, that ye should show forth the praises of him who hath called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Therefore, the royal household of God has a sacred responsibility, a solemn duty, to show forth the praises of God. Why? Once we're in darkness, we've been brought out of that darkness, uh, the darkness of this world's night, and we've been brought into the light. And because we're in the light, and because God has saved us, and been so good to us, Therefore, we need to show forth God's praises and live for him as his people. That's our duty. That's our purpose. That's our responsibility. That's our high calling, the calling of God in Christ Jesus. In the book of Colossians, we are to told in Colossians chapter 3, If ye then be risen with Christ, seek those things which are above, where Christ sitteth on the right hand of God. That's, that's what it is to... Show forth the praises of him that has called us. We seek those things that are above, where Christ sits on the right hand of God, seeking eternal delights, seeking spiritual treasures. And if you take time in your own private devotions and follow what Paul has written there in Colossians chapter 3, you will discover what it means to... Show forth the praises of him to seek those things that are above. Because the question is asked, how do I seek the things that are above? How do I show forth the praises of the Lord? Well, if you just follow the book of Colossians from chapter 3 and follow it on through, you'll discover that we have to deal with our sin. We mortify our members. You will discover that we need to put on bowels of mercies, kindness, humility, meekness, long-suffering. We've got to be forbearing and we've got to be forgiving. And you'll discover we need to get God's word sink into our hearts and dwell within us. And we have to minister to each other in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. You'll discover that wives need to submit to their husbands. And we'll discover that husbands need to love their wives. And children should obey their parents. And fathers shouldn't provoke their children to anger. We'll discover that servants should obey their masters in all things. And masters should be just and equal with their servants. And you'll discover that we need to continue in prayer and watch in the same with thanksgiving. And that's a wonderful summary of what it is to seek those things that are above, to show forth the praises of him that hath called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. Let's be encouraged, just meditating upon who we are as God's children. Let's realize our precious identity and let us rise to our noble purpose. And let us live for God in this dark world.
before it be too late. May the Lord bless these thoughts to your heart and to your soul this evening. As we come for prayer tonight, uh, could you pray very particularly and very specially for the service on Sunday morning? As I have constantly been stressing, it is a remarkable and a privileged opportunity we have to bring forth the word on the radio, and we're all going to be part of that. And there are tens of thousands of people listening to that service and to that broadcast. And so we want to pray that God will bless his word. We pray that God will bless the singing, that when people hear the, the words of the old, old story or the everlasting love, that their hearts will be warmed. Pray for our brother Neville, our clerk of session, he's opening in prayer, and pray the Lord will bless him. Pray for the youth choir, the Lord's my shepherd. And it's a beautiful piece, and of course, while it is a, a, a more of a, a, a modern version they're singing, yet it's based on the 23rd Psalm, Her Majesty's, Her Late Majesty's favorite hymn. So I just pray the Lord will bless those words, the Lord's my shepherd. Pray for our, 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 two, our two readers, uh, Lydia Wilson and Sophie Elliott are reading the scriptures and pray for those girls as they read, the Lord will help them. And our sister Avril Robinson is going to be bringing a word of testimony and pray that as Avril shares her story, how the Lord has undertaken for their family and how the Lord has saved her, that she'll know good help and that the Lord will use her words. And I am preaching from... Uh, just the next verse in, in, in the studies in, in, in First John, perfect love casts out all fear. And I was just thinking about that and how relevant that is. What a fearful world we live in. And there's so much worry and so much.